Welcome to Not Work Storytelling. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host and lead storyteller, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a myth worker, a story healer, a coach for writers and creative entrepreneurs, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. If you love what you hear and want to support the show as we enter our third season, I'd be so grateful if you become a paid subscriber on Substack. In my newsletter, Myth is Medicine, you'll receive bonus content related to the stories on the show and deep dives into how mythology and folklore can help the individual and the collective in the present moment and beyond. There's a link in the show notes to follow Myth is Medicine on Substack. Or you can simply visit mythismedicine.substack.com. Before we explore this week's story, I have a question for you. What about your stories? Whether it's a book project that wants to be birthed, deep, authentic writing to support your business, or a personal creative project you can't quite name yet, I'm here to support your process and help you get your words onto the page and into the world. I work with folks who are writing memoirs, chronicles of the spiritual journey, and books that explore healing and the imagination, even as they explore the toughest truths of life. I support entrepreneurs, especially coaches and therapists in private practice, who wish to weave their personal experiences with their professional knowledge and wisdom. Do you want to build a writing practice and develop the ideas you know you must share? Visit my website, marisagowdy.com, to learn more about my writing coaching services and set up a free 30-minute consultation. Season 3, Episode 13, The Women of the Grail, as told by Tara Wilde. Our guest, Tara Wilde, is a women's educator, storyteller, and songstress, focusing on uplifting nature-based feminine wisdom and ancestral teachings from Ireland and Britain. She's been on a journey of remembering and reclamation for over 10 years, honoring the earth-based feminine wisdom left in her blood and bones. Tara is the creator of The Roundhouse, an online membership community that lovingly guides women into nature-based feminine wisdom from the Irish traditions. She also runs courses, events, and workshops that serve thousands of women every year. She's trained as a women's moon circle facilitator with Moon Mana based in Dublin, as well as a keening and breathwork facilitator. Well, I am so excited to have Tara here on the podcast today. As is our way on Notwork Storytelling, we ask the story to speak for itself, and then we'll explore all the ways that it still matters. So Tara, will you tell us the story today? Yeah, I'm so excited to share one of the Grail stories. And before I dive into the story, I really wanted to give a bit of a historical introduction and talk a bit about its origins. So this will just take a few minutes. I think it's really important to ground the story in the land where it comes from, the traditions that it comes from, and so on. So the Grail mysteries and legends belong to the Arthurian cycle, which are also considered to fall under the category of medieval romances. And these medieval romances aren't stories about romance exactly, but a literary genre that really exalts chivalry. And it was very popular in the noble courts of high medieval and early modern Europe. And these stories are these fantastical adventures, which often feature a knight who goes on some kind of quest. As a little aside, in the Irish tradition, we find similar medieval tales called Ectri or Imram, 
you've probably had some of these stories on your podcast, maybe in which a hero goes on some kind of adventure into the other world, is shown great hospitality, witnesses strange happenings. They're very magical. And while these stories in both traditions focus on the adventures of male protagonists, there are these otherworldly women who appear in these stories and who are very, very powerful. And I find the women of the Grail stories to be incredibly fascinating. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that later. So the Grail stories, it feels important to say, are some of the sole surviving mythology that are associated with Britain and especially England. And unfortunately, these stories are fragmented and their origins are a bit unclear. But what we do know is that these stories traveled far and wide, but the stories themselves are always set in Britain. And these stories were originally pagan in nature and would have been passed down orally. And then later they were written down and later Christianized. And it was a French man called Robert de Boron who fabricated this idea of the grail in these stories actually being the holy grail from the Last Supper. But in the original stories, the grail is definitely not the holy grail. It feels important to spell that out for people because sometimes there's confusion. So these stories were written down for the first time in the medieval period, primarily in France, which kind of begs the question, why were these native British stories being recorded in France and Old French? And this is because there was a lot of migration that took place during the Saxon invasion of Britain from the 5th to the 11th centuries. And many people from Britain went to Northern France and there was a shared language for quite some time as well. And also it feels important to mention that during the early medieval and also before, there were lots of stories being exchanged between Ireland and Britain via Wales. Lots of Breton storytellers went to the Norman courts in France and told their stories so stories traveled, which I think is really fascinating and were influenced by other stories. And we definitely see different influences in the Grail stories and lots of similarities with mythology from Ireland and Wales. So just as a final thing to kind of bring us into the story, and I almost feel that this is part of the story, is really painting a picture of the medieval setting where these stories would have been told orally because the Grail stories, as well as other stories in these traditions, would have been told orally by storytellers. So I'm going to read a little passage from a book called The Grail, From Celtic Myth to Christian Symbol, by Roger Sherman Loomis, who paints this really beautiful, vivid picture of this medieval setting. He says, Let us turn back the clock to the 12th century and imagine ourselves as guests in the great hall of a castle. It's a winter's evening and many torches set in sockets along the walls enable us to make out the mural paintings illustrating the fall of Troy or the wars of Charlemagne. Candelabra illuminate the high table covered with white napery. A baron who holds the office of butler and his minions stand ready with their pitchers to refill the gilded and silver goblets with spiced wine. In spite of the logs blazing in the great fireplace, the atmosphere is chilly and most of the household wear woolen robes lined or bordered with fur. The bearded lord of the castle, his lady with long braids of yellow hair, two tonsured ecclesiastics, and certain honored guests are engaging in chatting and laughing at the high table. There comes a pause. The lord gives his signal to the marshal. The marshal calls for silence. 
and beckons a black-haired man in his prime seated at one of the lower tables. Thus summoned, the man approaches the dais, bows to the lord and lady, and asks what tale they would like to hear. And the lord calls for the adventure of Percival at the castle of the Fisher King. This is an old favorite, but the tale is never too stale, for every storyteller has his own version, an amalgam of those he has heard, with original touches of his own. The audience listens, hushed, while, after a pious invocation, he launches into the story. So I'm not going to give a pious invocation, but I am going to share the story of Percival at the castle of the Fisher King. This is the very first Grail story written to paper by Cretan de Troyes, and it's called Percival, the story of the Grail. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from it as well. So our story begins with a young man called Percival, who is like a holy fool, the fool from the tarot. And he's raised by his mother away from civilization in the forest of Wales. One day when Percival is in the forest, he encounters a band of knights from King Arthur's court and he's overwhelmed by their beauty. He actually thinks they're angels at first. And Percival decides then and there that he wants to become a knight. Percival's mother, however, is distraught that he's met the knights, and she tells her son about his family history. So Percival's father was wounded in battle and lost all of his wealth. His two brothers became knights and died in combat, and then their father died of grief. So the last thing that Percival's mother wants is for him to become a knight, which is why she's hidden him in the forest. But Percival is determined. So he leaves his mother with her reluctant blessing, and she gives him some rather bad advice, which includes advice not to talk too much and not to ask silly questions. He then goes to the court of Camelot, and he tells King Arthur that he wants to be a knight. But the court thinks this is very funny because he's obviously from the woods, he's young, he's inexperienced, and so he's kind of laughed out of court. So he leaves and he meets a nobleman living in a castle. And this nobleman trains Percival in the art of becoming a knight and gives some advice, which includes a warning not to speak too much, a little bit like his mother's warning. Percival then goes on his way and has many adventures and he fights knights and he beats them in battle. And when he's beaten them, he sends them to Camelot to tell King Arthur of his victories and heroism. Again, with the intention of wanting to become a real knight. At this point in the story, he finds a man fishing in a river who turns out to be a king of a castle. And this fisher king invites Percival to come and stay at his castle for the night, though Percival doesn't know yet that he's a king. I will now read directly from the translation of Cretan's story, which describes Percival at the court of the fisher king. There he waited till the lord of the castle sent two squires to fetch Percival, and he accompanied them to the square hall, which was as long as it was wide. In the middle he saw, sitting on a couch, a handsome nobleman with grizzled locks, on his head a sable cap, black as a mulberry, with a crimson lapé below and a robe of the same. He was reclining on his elbow, and in front of him a great fire of dry branches blazed between four columns. 
400 men could seat themselves comfortably around it. The four strong columns which supported the hood of the fireplace were of massive bronze. The squires brought the youth before his host and stood on either side of him. When the Lord saw him approach, he promptly greeted him, saying, Friend, do not take it amiss if I do not rise to meet you, but I cannot do so easily. In God's name, sire, do not speak of it, for as God may give me joy and health, it does not offend me. The nobleman raised himself with difficulty as much as he could and said, Friend, draw near, do not be abashed, but sit here at my side, for so I bid you. As the youth sat beside him, the nobleman inquired, Friend, from what place did you come today? Sire, this morning I left the castle called Belrepierre. So help me God, exclaimed the nobleman. You've had quite a long day's ride. You must have departed before the watchman blew his horn at dawn. No, the youth answered. Prime has already begun to rung, I assure you. There's then a little section where the nobleman gives Percival a very beautiful, finely crafted sword. And then it continues. While they were talking of this and that, a squire entered from a chamber, grasping by the middle of a white lance, and passed between the fire and those seated on the couch. As a note, a lance is a spear. All present beheld the white lance and the white point, from which a drop of red blood ran down the squire's hand. The youth who had arrived that night watched this marvel, but he refrained from asking what this meant for he was mindful of the lesson which his mentor had given him, warning him against too much speech. And he feared that if he asked, it would be considered rude. So he held his peace. Then two squires came in, right handsome, bearing in their hands candelabra of fine gold and yellow work. And in each candelabrum were at least 10 candles. A damsel came in with these squires, holding between her two hands a grail. She was beautiful, gracious, splendidly garbed, and as she entered with the grail in her hands, there was such a bright light that the candles lost their brightness, just as the stars do when the moon or sun rises. After her came a damsel holding a carving dish of silver. The grail which preceded her was of refined gold, and it was set with precious stones of many kinds the richest and the costliest that exist in the sea or in the earth. Without question, those set in the grail surpassed all other jewels. Like with the lance, these damsels passed before the couch and entered another chamber. The youth watched them pass, but he did not dare to ask concerning the grail and whom one served with it, for he kept in his heart the words of the wise nobleman. I fear that harm will come of this because I have heard say that one can be too silent as well as be too loquacious, but for better or for worse, Percival put no question. So following this passage, a great feast is held in the hall of the Fisher King and Percival goes to sleep that night. Then when he awakes in the morning, he finds that the castle is completely empty. All the inhabitants have completely vanished. And so he leaves the castle and he continues on his way. And shortly after setting off, he comes across a weeping woman who we will call the mourning maiden. At least that's what I call her. Who's grieving over the body of a dead knight whose head has been cut off. And she says, oh, miserable one, 
some evil star cursed the hour of my birth, bringing me into existence to suffer every sort of pain and escaping none. I wouldn't have lived to see my beloved dead, had God so willed. He should have decreed that death, who brought me such sorrow, left him alive and killed me. Why leave me without my beloved? What is life worth when all I love best is dead? With him gone, both my life and my body mean nothing to me. Take my soul, O death, so I can go with him. It's this morning maiden who then tells Percival about the fisher king whose castle he spent the night in. She says, my lord, he's a king, I can tell you that for certain. He was wounded in battle and so badly hurt, so maimed, that without help he cannot even walk. A spear struck him right between the legs, and the pain is still so great that riding a horse is impossible. Importantly, in other versions of this story, there's a very clear connection between the emasculated Fisher King and the state of his lands, which have become a wasteland. For example, in Wolfram's version, the Fisher King has been kept alive by the Grail against his will, and as a result, suffers greatly because he is wounded. And he has been emasculated by a lance, possibly the bleeding lance, the spear, from this otherworldly procession in the castle. And because of this, the Fisher King's land has become a wasteland. Coming back to this story, the conversation between the mourning maiden and Percival continues, and she scolds him for not asking what was going on when the procession was taking place in the castle the night before with the lance and the grail. And she says, you're Percival, the unhappy, the miserable, the unfortunate. Ah, how unlucky you are. For had you asked those questions, you could have completely cured the good king of all his wounds. He would have become entirely whole and ruled as he should. How much good you'd have done. The morning maiden then tells him to set off in the direction of the man who killed her lover, and he goes on his way. Later in the story, Percival is found by King Arthur's knights and is congratulated for all of his achievements, and he becomes an official knight of the round table. And Percival is very pleased with himself until a woman comes to Arthur's court called the Loathly Lady, who is a terrible and ugly woman. Here's how she's described and what she says to Percival in the court. On a tawny mule, her right hand holding a whip, she wore her hair in two black, immense and ugly braids. And if the book that tells us about her are truthfully written, no creature has ever seemed so awful, not even at the bottom of hell. You'll never see iron as black as her neck and hands, but her hands and neck were not her ugliest parts. Her eyes were two deep caves, smaller than the eyes on a rat. And her nose was as a monkey's or a cat's with a donkey's ears or a cow's. Her teeth were as yellow as an egg, but darker, more like rust. And she wore a beard like a goat. A hump grew in the middle of her chest and her back was crooked and her thighs and shoulders were perfectly made for dancing. Oh, the hump on her back and her twisted legs were beautifully made for leading a ball. Riding her mule, she came right up to the king who had never seen such a lady at a royal court. She greeted the king and all his barons as one, but Percival she addressed by name, speaking from her perch on her tawny mule. 
Ah, uh, Percival, my friend, fortune is bald behind, but hairy in front. May curses fall on whoever greets you or wishes you well or prays for your soul. You found fortune, but didn't know how to keep it. The Fisher King made you his guest and you saw the bleeding lance, but you couldn't be bothered to open your mouth and speak, asking why that drop of blood came rolling down from the point of that shining spear. You saw the grail carried in and never asked for what great lord it was born. Those who see their chance but never grasp it, hoping for a better, must suffer for their failure. You're that unlucky man who watched opportunity arrive and held his tongue. What an unlucky fool. How wrong it were for you to sit there silent when just a simple question could have cured that rich and noble king of his suffering, allowed him to rule his kingdom in peace. But now he never will. Do you know what will happen now that he'll never be cured, never be able to rule his own lands? Ladies will lose their husbands, countries will be ruined, girls will have no guidance and be forced to linger as orphans, and a host of knights will die, and all because of you. So she really reprimands him <laughs> quite intensely. Now, unfortunately, Cretan's version of the Grail story is left incomplete, and at this point in the story, he shifts to another story about Gawain. And it's obvious that Cretan intended to pick up Percival's story later, but he died before he ever got the chance. So the story is unfinished. However, there are a number of medieval authors who attempt to finish what he started. So I'm going to just wrap up the story here with a continuation from Wolfram von Eschenbach. And in this version, the loathly lady with all the different animal features is called Kundri. So once she's scorned Percival in front of the court and the knights, she rides off into the forest. And Percival leaves Arthur's court and he's very distraught by being disgraced by all that Kundri has said. And he blames God and he sets off from the court vowing to not rest until he's found the grail again so that he can ask the question this time. So he searches for the grail for four and a half years, and there are lots of different adventures on the way. Then on Good Friday, he meets a man who says he must search out a hermit. And so Percival goes to find this hermit, and he finds him and learns about God and sin and the devil and the grail and his own potential role in the grail story. And the hermit tells Percival that no man can find the grail unless he is called by it. And from time to time, on the edge of the grail itself, the, the, whatever the vessel is, names would appear of the men who are destined to become knights of the grail. And the hermit says that these men come from many lands and that Percival is probably one of them. So Percival then leaves the hermit, a changed man, and sets off again on his quest. He has more adventures and eventually he comes across Kundri again. But this time, this loathly lady, Kundri, she appears to him quite differently than the first time. She's veiled and she comes on a noble horse with the insignia of the grail and tells him that he's done a very good job at transforming himself. She apologizes for having doubted him and her original curse is replaced by a blessing. And she praises him for being a very fine man and says that he will be the next grail king and she then takes him off to the Fisher King's castle.
Oh, Tara, there's so much here. Thank you for sharing this story of curiosity and of just calling in all of these different archetypal women in a story that has so often been so very male dominated in that Mm -hmm. adventure. Asking that question, right, of what ails thee and the power of seeking out an answer and being brave enough to ask. The grail question is is so interesting and I could speak about this so much, but the, and the question is different depending on the different stories. So mm-hmm. in Cretin's version that we just read, the question is, whom does the grail serve? Oh. And a, a different version, what is the purpose of the grail? And then mm-hmm. in Wolfram's version, what ails thee? Right. But it's all sort of the same kind of question, which is really about what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And it's not even about the answer but the ability to be present in the moment and have the kind of spiritual maturity to ask the right question. Mm. So it's so interesting that this story is really all about asking a question when we boil it down to its essence. And for me, that is an incredibly important thing for us to reflect on in these times is as we're looking at the world around us, which has so many complex issues how do we ask the right question to really understand what's going on and how to be of service? Mm -hmm. And you frame that so well in the story in the sense that his search is to ask the question, not for the grail itself. And I think we've confused it with thinking, oh, it's about the prize. It's about the sacred chalice. And of course, understanding that we've connected that to Christ and the Holy Grail, but it's become materialist story in the sense of if you go for the symbol that represents and holds all wisdom and all goodness, then you will have achieved success. And instead, as you offer it to us, it's like, no, it's that bravery to go out and ask and figure out that you want to enter into the conversation in a new way. Yeah. And so much of Percival's story is about being transformed as well. His time with the hermit in the woods towards the end of the story, at least in Wolfram's version, it's really about him transforming himself. And that's what the loathly lady, Kundri, is really asking him to do very sternly and fiercely. Like you need to transform yourself. You need to come to a spiritual maturity within yourself and grow up basically, if you're ever going to really fulfill your greater destiny, your purpose and be able to even ask the right question. There's so many themes that I know we could explore here today. We won't get to all of them because, of course, these stories are enormous. But this idea of the wasteland, I know, is something that is intriguing for both of us. And I'm finding it fascinating, too, this idea of Kundri and how she, of all the animal parts, described as something so very ugly. But, of course, she was wilderness. She was the wilds embodied. And that's baked into Percival's story so completely, too, because he came from that being that wild fool and being out there. And I guess he was a little more handsome than she was. But there's that tension throughout the story in terms of out in the wilds, in the wilderness, and that sort of freedom compared to civilization. And this is what it is to be chivalric. This is what it is to be one of the knights. Yeah. So I love, let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, this story is so much about balance and imbalance Mm -hmm. and juxtaposing different elements of life. And so we do have Kundri, the wild woman from the woods, contrasted with the knights of Camelot and this very rich and royal court. 
And she's the total opposite of that. And her entrance and the way that she speaks to the knights really shows us this contrast of the wild of nature and society and all that society entails and holds and all the rules and chivalry and all the things. Like she wants nothing to do with any of that. So this contrasting that happens in the story, which is really, I think, one of the major roles of the women in this story is to show that comparison and to contrast and show where things are out of balance. So Kundri, the loathly lady for me, absolutely. She's this wild woman. She also kind of echoes something that we find in Ireland, though we can see it here as well in the British traditions, is this idea of women really representing a certain aspect of life, which is to do with the land and the other world being a personification of nature and being a a bridge. And meanwhile, the king represents society. He represents the sacred masculine and he represents sort of order and justice and all those things. So they kind of hold these different but equal roles. And I very much feel that in this story, we see that as well. So we have Kundri representing this kind of sovereign aspect of self that's connected to the woods and connected to nature and wildness and what have you, similar to the sovereignty goddesses in Ireland who are the personification of the land and what have you. And this contrast between masculine and feminine, the land and society, spirit, and really our intellect as humans, it's all kind of contrasted on this spectrum. And so when all of this is in balance, there's abundance. And when that balance is thrown off, we get the wasteland. So the wasteland is really sort of a, it's not even so much a place, but a state of things, right? So it's kind of a barrenness of the land with the waters running dry and the animals disappearing from the forest. So there's no game, there's no food, the crops failing, there's sickness, you know, that's kind of the the symptoms of the wasteland in this body of mythology from both Ireland and Britain. And so it kind of has this outward appearance, but then there's also to me sort of an inner wasteland that happens when we become disconnected from soul and from spirit, when we are out of balance, right? Within ourselves. So for me, the wasteland is really about living in a land that's lost its heart Mm -hmm. and a society that's lost its soul. So we can obviously experience that outwardly and inwardly. And there's so much about the idea of the wasteland that resonates for me in these modern times we live in, because I very much feel that we largely live in a land that's lost its heart because we've exploited her so much, the land so much, and a society that's lost its soul in many ways. And these stories are kind of a a map, a pathway back for us to rediscover that sense of soul and lineage and the story of our ancestors and everything that you're doing with this podcast plays into that in my mind. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting too, to kind of weave all these ideas together in the sense of the quest for balance and that recognition of that masculine and feminine sides of things. And then that sense of all the imbalances we're suffering right now at so many levels. But what one of the things that really strikes me about Kundri is that she is that wildness embodied, right? But she's also fearsome. She's also Mm -hmm. that sense of let's hold her at arm's length. And I'm thinking about our Instagram landscape, which is sometimes lush and fertile and full of all these fabulous connections and how I've met so many people who've come on the show. 
And then also it's that sense of sometimes it becomes such a den of contradiction. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually just thinking about that sense of knowing that rewilding and that that idea of you know calling in your wildness is such a beguiling phrase for so many people right now. And it's that reminder of like, and sometimes the wild is perceived as too far outside, as too ugly, as not domesticated enough to fit into the lives as we understand them. And that's when these women really get me most excited because I find their contradictions so utterly compelling And I also recognize when I'm sort of pushing them away and what kind of leap does it take to sit with Kundri and all of her sense of like, oh, she's got the rusty teeth of the Kalyach. And how are we both so excited by that and also being like, but I really, really love my dental care and I'm going to stick with that. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting for me that some of these more severe female characters like Kundri or like the Kailyak or the Morrigan or various other mythic women from our ancient mythology. It's like they're almost, the way that they've been treated over the centuries is almost like they're exiled, right? Mm -hmm. It's like they've been exiled in the way that they don't live in society. They live on the edges of society in the stories. And also they're sometimes treated quite brutally by the Christian scribes who wrote them down, wrote them to paper. And so there's this kind of sense of them being exiled, both within the mythology to some degree, and also within ourselves. Like we've exiled the part of us that is wild and we've pushed it to the edges of who we are. And we sometimes don't even want to look at it because it's it feels like it's ugly, right? Like Kundri, she's described as being ugly. And it feels really important to integrate these parts of ourselves and to give them new life and to hold the complexity of who we are. I feel that because we live in a very complex world, a very complex society, and we have so much information and access to everything that's going on all around the world at any given time, I feel like there's sort of part of us that craves simplicity Mm -hmm. because everything's so complicated. And so sometimes we kind of forget to really embrace the complexity of who we are Mm -hmm. and to embrace the fullness of our humanity. And I find that both inward and outwardly, right? That in our attempt to try to simplify things, we actually, we lose a lot of our humanity and complexity, which is really a shame because I think it actually creates more division amongst each other. So yeah, I love that Kundri kind of, in, and these sort of wild women from these traditions invite us to really look at the parts of us that we've exiled. And certainly that's true for the mournful maiden as well, right? I mean, that yes. level of lamentation is just like, oh, sister, that's just too much. Was any love affair worth so much that you just want to give up on the entire project of life? And then, of course, we all recognize that when we've been in such intense moments of grief, we ourselves have held that. Looking at it in a character is, again, repellent from a different (laughs) angle. It's not the ugliness that's frightening. It's the abject sorrow. But then, of course, we have on the other side, I mean, because there's it's all contained and continued in the Keening tradition and in the, you know, the idea of the Bankincha, that that Keening woman who holds the sorrow for an entire community 
and helps to sort of alchemize it through her keen, through her chant, through her song. And I feel like there's a way in which just the existence of the morning maiden in this and being like, this woman embodies greatest sorrow. Yeah. Can you be with her? Can you stand with her? How does she get to exist in this story? And certainly she creates the ripples just by speaking with Percival, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm rereading a beautiful book right now called Circle of Stones by Judith Dierk. And there's this chapter where she talks about how women really, as part of our homecoming and healing and reclamation of self as woman, need to grieve and be in that state of sorrow because we've been so conditioned away from grief and sorrow and pain that there's so much locked up inside of us that really needs to mourn. And so for me, the the mourning maiden is a representation of that, everything that we need to mourn because really she's mourning for her dead lover, but she's mourning for this act of violence is part of the reason in my mind that the wasteland in this story exists is because there's this terrible violence that has been going on for we don't know how long. It's symbolized by the bleeding lance, for example, the bleeding spear. And to me, this is really a symbol of the wounded masculine and also of the state of violence that has in some way caused the wasteland and the Fisher King being struck by the spear and he's emasculated. So the wounded masculine, right? And so there's this is part of what's out of balance is the harmony between masculine and feminine and violence causing this wounded masculine. And so part of what Percival's journey is, is not about conquest and it's not about violence or obtaining something. It's not about conquering something. It's really about this spiritual maturity coming back to wholeness and coming back to a, a really good relationship with the balanced masculine, the whole masculine. So there's a lot more that I could say about the masculine, the role of the masculine in these stories. But I think the final thing I'll just share about that is, interestingly, there is a, a later version of the Grail story. I forget who it's by now, but there's a later version, uh, kind of another continuation like Wolfram's. But basically the writer highly Christianized the text. There's like visions of the Virgin Mary and all kinds of things. And included in his story is this, basically the, the loathly lady in this, in this particular version says to Percival that he can either ask the question or he can conquer the grail. And it's the first time that we see this idea of conquering the grail come into the stories. And it feels like such a perversion of what the story is about. And it's so interesting that this is highly linked to the fact that this man is Christianizing the story and also the influence of what was happening historically at the time with the Crusades. So there was a lot of crusading and conquering happening with Christianity at that time. So it's really interesting that as the Grail stories kind of go along, they become more and more Christianized. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, this whole idea of conquering the Grail, it's just really, really fascinating. And for me, that's the whole idea of conquest is the reason why there's the wasteland. So it is really interesting to see this, this version kind of come through. And I feel like it's completely implicit in what you're saying, but of course, that idea of the Grail being the chalice, being that feminine symbol of life right. and rebirth. And we have the spear, we have the lance, we have that sword that beheaded the man, like there's that imbalance kind of writ large right there. What happens when you conquer the womb? 
thought it was an interesting idea that we're still struggling with this sense of when to speak, how to act, how to present yourself, how to avoid being the fool, and at what cost, what kind of destruction happens when we're too afraid to be that zero card on the tarot, when we're afraid mm-hmm. to take be that one about to take that first step, to look less worldly, to look less capable, how much we end up missing out on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so interesting to me that for me, social media has kind of really amped up this kind of self-censorship where we do not ask questions and asking questions, even the most simple of questions is sometimes sort of met with a lot of hostility and division and derision. And so I feel like more and more, it's sort of hard for us to ask meaningful questions because they're construed in a way that's seen as disrespectful or ignorant or what have you. But if we stop asking questions, then we, I really think that we are in trouble as a society and we need to continue asking questions and stop worrying about what other people are going to think of us. And we need to be more compassionate with each other when we ask questions. And I think that there's a lot of sort of seeing enemies where there are none when questions are asked. Mm. So yeah, I think this whole idea of, of asking the right question and asking meaningful questions is very important for the times that we live in when there is so much self-censorship. And it's so deeply ironic too, that we're in an age of information more than one could possibly ever take in. Everything's just a Google query away, but oftentimes we just leave ourselves to, well, can I put it into the search box and then I'll get back some information when we know that the depths of these things come through conversation, through vulnerability, through that sense of putting yourself out there and saying, hi, this is the first step of this journey I've ever taken. I don't have a map and I'm not even sure if this is a road. Can we talk? Certainly offers us, well, fertility, right? And isn't that so much the quest? Yeah, absolutely. And having that sort of what I would consider sort of feminine receptivity to really mm. receive the question as well. Yeah. yeah. As you beautifully shared, you know, the, the grail is really, at least in my eyes, a symbol of the feminine. And interestingly, people kind of have a misunderstanding about what the grail actually is. And I feel like I should just clarify that for people. Um, so people think of it as a cup usually, but that's actually not necessarily what it is, which feels very important. So you know, some people do say it's a cup or a chalice, but the original French word from the 12th century actually actually makes it seem more like a serving dish. Mm-hmm. And in all the grail stories, it's some kind of horn or vessel or platter or dish that provides sustenance. And it's always found in the context of feasting. So it's really a symbol of abundance. The cup to me feels very womb-like, but even mm-hmm. the, the platter serving the food It's very reminiscent, again, of the sovereignty goddesses in Ireland who represent the abundance of the land, the personification of the land, its bounty and life. It's really Mm. a symbol of life, first and foremost. And so I love that you brought in the abundance piece, because yes, asking the right question brings an abundance of connection and balance. And it's it's the way that we get to balance is through asking meaningful questions and being in meaningful conversation. And um, I just wanted to also share one last thing about the grail women. So we have the grail bearer, who is the otherworldly woman who carries the grail in the court of the Fisher King in the context of the feast. 
She's the one who gives the gift of the grail and she doesn't usually say anything. And then we have the loathly lady or Kundri, who's this ugly outspoken woman who represents the voice of the grail. And then we have the mourning maiden, who's a young woman who's mourning for her dead lover. And I really put it together in my head that the grail bearer represents life, right? Because she represents that abundance of the land, feasting. She holds a vessel of some kind that echoes this life-giving vessel of the womb. And then we have the mourning maiden who represents death. She's grieving for someone she's loved who's been brutally killed. And sometimes she directs the knight in the direction of the killer. And sometimes that has like a vengeful intent and sometimes it doesn't. And then we have the loathly lady who represents transformation and rebirth. And so she reprimands Percival for not asking the all important question. And she's really the instigator and initiator of Percival's transformation. So we very clearly have these three grail women representing life, death, and rebirth and transformation, mm-hmm. which feels very, very important. And I feel like it says a lot about some of the archetypal energies that we all hold as women. I'm so grateful that we got you encapsulated all three in that beautiful sort of spoken passage. And I'm finding it so interesting that the one that we landed on last appeared first in the story. And of course, she's the beautiful, wordless one. She's the mm-hmm. simplest one to to understand in the sense of the story of she was beautiful. She was radiant. From her came all of the gifts. Moving on, let's go think about those women who are much more complicated and challenging, perhaps much more like us in certain ways, because she, the, the Grail Maiden, is that idealized being that I think in so many ways is actually much more remote from us, even though she's that fairy princess version we're given as children. She's the model on the billboard sort of thing. And I'm really, I want to put words in her mouth. I really do. Like, I want to know what that story is and what her inner world is. But it's so fascinating that when you and I first touch on this story, she has the least juice, the least grit, the least, you know, we can't put our hands in her clay and start to work it based on what was given here. And that's just always, oh, that's why I love these stories that give us invitations to keep exploring and seeing what, what makes her tick? Why? Mm -hmm. How does she feel? Yeah, absolutely. And so interesting. Again, this story has so many contrasts in it. So we have the Loathly Lady and the Morning Maiden who have a lot to say for themselves, especially the Loathly Lady and Kundry. And by contrast, the Grail Bear says nothing. And to me, it's not that she doesn't have a voice, it's that she holds the power of silence Mm. because silence can be just as powerful as words. And every time I I read that passage of her coming in, I feel such a deep sense of mystery. Like Mm. there's such a mystery about her that really enchants me. Maybe not everyone feels that way, but I really see her as this divine presence which is part of all of us. And like you said, maybe it's kind of almost the most, uh, what's the word, sort of foreign to us, that energy. But to me, that presence of being a divine vessel that holds the wisdom of the land is so beautiful. And I feel, yeah, I just feel incredibly enchanted by her (laughs) beyond how I can describe. And I almost see her beauty, not even so much as 
physical beauty, even though that is how she's described. For me, it's more about the beauty of her soul emanating through her and the fact that she is this vessel and that she provides this abundance and this blessing. She's really providing this blessing. And that seems to just speak so much to your work and why you're called to do it to that you add so much dimensionality to her from that sense of was she once the idealized angel being? I wonder how much she was considered back then and in what ways she was. Her story had a chance to have all the depths that you read into it. Of course it did in some levels. And in other ways, she was just the pretty girl who stood on set and held the, you know, was the Vanna White of the story. And that's part of, I feel like that's my own magic is like, oh, I want to give us the Wheel of Fortune kind of reading. And also we hold the space for the greater resonances that says she is earth and water coming together. Because I love that idea too, just to loop back. And the way you remind us that the grail is not necessarily a cup. It could be a plate. It is both cup and plate because certainly all the versions weaving together, it's water and earth. It's those creative forces and that she's there holding both of them as I'm imagining it now. And as you're helping us root her into the greatest sovereignty goddess tradition, that entire concept of embodying the land in feminine human form and all of the potentiality that's in that. And just thank you for that idea of the gift of silence. Because, you know, we've worked so hard, especially in the last century or so as feminists to say, wait, you know, if Anonymous was a woman and what would Shakespeare's sister have said? There's also that sacred holiness in the silence that it really holds the story itself and holds its resonance. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you... Yes, woven once again, the idea of the sovereignty goddesses. And for me, this is kind of the British version of that, which is less clear and less defined, but still very felt. And actually, there's a grail story written after the one I read, but it's supposed to predate kind of as a prelude to the story, which is called The Elucidation. And it talks about these well maidens who carry these golden grails and who serve water from the wells. And for me, that's these women in their embodied form. And the grail maiden we see in this story is actually giving a blessing in the wasteland. So there's something that's gone amiss. So for me, the elucidation actually explains what has gone amiss, basically, which has to do with the wounded masculine and the idea of conquering and defilement of women's bodies in the earth and what have you. So I won't get into that now because it's too much to share. And I am actually going to be hosting a workshop where we dive into this story of the elucidation and the grail women and really look at them in much more detail. We're going to be exploring English mythology and mythic women and these traditions also, but yeah, it's a whole topic in and of itself. But I just wanted to reference it because it feels important as part of the grail bearer's story. We're seeing a very tiny part of her story here and her story actually is much more deep and rich and has a lot more to it than we're seeing on the page here. Mm. Oh, well, Tara, I, I, that feels like the perfect place to land as we sort of end one story, begin anew, allow people to start asking more questions of saying, who is the Grail Maiden really? What happens when we go out in our own lives and looking to mythology in search of her and all the stories she could tell? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like 
all three of the women in the Grail stories, um, these three different types of women, have so much wisdom to share. And for me, as I shared this story, so much about balance and imbalance. And that's really where we are right now. There's so much that's in balance in our mm-hmm. society and in our lives and the way that we relate to the earth and so many of the things that the grail bearer in particular represents we're so out of balance with and so it feels very potent and meaningful to return to these stories as sort of a map back to ourselves and also a way forward as to how do we ask the right questions how do we bring back balance and how do we stand in all of this with our sovereignty. So yes, I'm hosting a workshop (laughs) soon, which is called Women of the Wells, which is really going to introduce England's native mythology and mythic women, which will include the Grail stories. And this one particular story we're really going to dive deep into, which is called The Elucidation. But yeah, there's so much in this body of mythology and these traditions. And I find there's so much to explore and sometimes that can feel really overwhelming for people because it's like, where do I begin? How do I understand all of this? Because it is complex. So really that's, that's sort of my gift is distilling all of that into something that's easy to understand and that feels relatable and feels really relevant to our lives as modern women in particular. Mm. Oh, thank you so much, Tara, for all of this. I'm so excited that we've gotten a chance to get to know each other through this conversation. Excited to see where we could travel to next. So where can people find you and a little bit more about all the things you've been cooking up over the last few years and your next program? Yeah, so you can go to my website, which is tara-wild.com. And you'll see on the website that there's a page called Women of the Wells, which is where you can learn about that. That's going to be coming soon. And it's kind of the beginning of this new body of work that I'm bringing forward, which is focusing on the English traditions and English mythology. I also have a lot of teachings about Ireland and nature-based feminine wisdom from Ireland, ancestral teachings. That's that's the body of work I've really been building the past three or four years. So yeah, my intention is really to have both available, the teachings from Ireland and from England. So I'm moving into that soon, which feels really exciting. But yes, you can go to my website to see all of my offerings and you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and please come and connect. I'd love to hear from you if you're listening. Brilliant. Well, Tara, thank you so very much. Mila Buikas, it's been such a wonderful afternoon to spend with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. And do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. Creating this show is a labor of love, and your support will help me continue to craft and share stories through season three and beyond. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber over on Substack, where I'm writing and creating additional audio magic with my newsletter and content hub. Myth is medicine. You can find out more about my writing, my book, our online creative community, The Heroine's Knot, as well as how to work with me as a coach at marisagowdy.com. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out more about their music and shows at billyandbeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, 
whose name means original people. <laughs> 